0: specific moment in time.
1: This is Jenna Ellis in the morning.
0: Well, good morning. It is Monday, February 5th, and yesterday in Los Angeles, California, uh, and Sun Valley, there was a wonderful uh, service and celebration for Pastor John MacArthur, who is celebrating 55 years as the head pastor of Grace Community Church. And what an amazing and incredible ministry that is to um, be so faithful to one congregation for so long. I think a lot of us as Christians think that, you know, we have to continue to go and do and, and, and continue to kind of, you know, climb the ladder. And, and we apply that sometimes to ministry, but um, he has just been faithful. And look at how many people now that his ministry has impacted, not just in Sun Valley, California, but uh, truly worldwide and not just nationwide, but worldwide. And uh, of course, if you have not yet seen The Essential Church movie, um, that was the documentary based on the legal battle, uh, not only with him, but also some Canadian pastors, you can find that it's streaming on Salem Now, also Amazon, and uh, you can get the DVD as well. But I want to wish Pastor John MacArthur a very happy celebration. And um, turning to now not uh, not so happy things in Washington, D.C., the other side of the country. Um, there is this week, uh, the Speaker just announced that the House will vote on a clean bill to send Israel $14.3 billion. Uh, and this coming from Representative Thomas Massey, Israel has a lower debt to GDP ratio than the United States. This spending package has no offsets, so it will increase our debt by $14.3 billion plus interest. I'm a no. Uh, Congressman Bob Good from the great state of Virginia said, we can support our most important ally, Israel, in a manner that reflects our fiscal principles and protects our ability to respond to future crises. There are unlimited options of unjustified, wasteful and even harmful spending to cut and use to pay for Israel supplemental. So Congressman Bob Good joins me now. And um, Congressman, this actually really surprised me that this kind of clean bill would be sent that has zero offsets. Um, What has been the justification from the speaker's office for this?
2: Jenna, what I think perhaps the best thing that the new speaker, new Earth speaker, been there a little over ninety days, did since he's been a speaker. In addition to Mayorkas impeachment moving forward, finally after a year when the previous speaker didn't do his job, but Speaker Johnson did do the Israel stand alone paid for back in early November. Uh, which was appropriate because uh, across the Republican conference, there's near unanimous, if not unanimous, support for Israel, recognizing one of our most important allies, our only true ally in the Middle East, and many of us as Christians certainly uh, having strong support for Israel. However... Uh, we have been begging and pleading with Speaker Johnson to turn the page and the era of unpaid supplementals, meaning when we do these, these additional spending bills that are outside the regular budget process that further exacerbate our debt situation. And we've never been at $34 trillion in national debt before. We've never been at a $200 billion monthly deficit before. We we are imperiling our ability to respond to future crises because of our debt and our borrowing from our kids and our grandkids to do it. So that was a great thing that Speaker Johnson did. The Senate didn't take it up. And, of course, what we put in there was funding for it by cutting the IRS expansion. What a disaster now to turn around and negotiate against ourselves. The Senate didn't take up our bill. So now we're going to say, okay, instead of 14000000000 billion, let's do $17 billion and let's not pay for it now. Let's just borrow it to do it. There's so many things. If the Senate didn't like cutting the IRS, then let's cut U.N. funding. Let's cut the climate credits. Let's cut funding for the WHO. There's lots of low-hanging fruit. We should send them a different supplemental every day, paying for it with different options, Uh and because we want to support Israel. The Senate under Schumer apparently does not. They're not willing to cut anything to do so. Uh So unfor- it's unfortunately a big disappointment that the Speaker would once again cave and surrender to the pressure from the senate to the pressure from the media to the pressure from i think he was trying to head off this supplemental coming from Schumer that was released last night the big supplemental the 118 billion for ukraine and other spending that's the phony border security bill phony border security bill Uh, but that didn't work obviously and so uh... he he has put speaker johnson with doing this on the israel supplemental has put conservatives in a very difficult position to choose between showing that we support Israel or compromising our principles from a fiscal standpoint and and further imperiling, again, our ability to support our allies because of our debt situation.
0: And really well said, uh, Congressman Bob Gooden. And it feels like a lot of times the the Republicans are just begging the Democrats for scraps, and there's really no negotiation. It's just the Democrats hold the line, and so then Republicans just kind of cave and cave and back off and back off. And you mentioned the national debt is at thirty four trillion dollars, and um, this headline from Bloomberg is saying that we will soon spend more on interest than national defense. I mean, this, how, how can there even be a justification at all for this kind of, of bill? And yes, we're all, I I think on, on this program, certainly, and, and my audience is all for supporting Israel, but we also have to understand that we just don't have the money to send without cutting back spending elsewhere.
2: Yes. We need to further expose the Senate that they are unwilling to support Israel and or unwilling to cut any spending, no matter how wasteful, harmful, abusive, egregious, unjustified that it might be. Uh, there are, there's policies that are actually hurting Israel that are supported by this administration that we ought to cut. You know, why don't we cut funding for, uh, you know, some of the policies, the, the two, the two state solution diplomacy, cut, cut, cut that policy, which is actually hurting Israel, uh, cut, cut funding for the Palestinians, cut funding for, you know, uh, Iran. You know, take some, claw back some of that money that we're given, the billions that we're to Iran, and give that to Israel. Uh, there's low hanging fruit that we could we could uh, cut uh, again. IRS, UN funding. The UN get takes billions of our dollars to help illegals cheat our asylum system. Uh, let's cut funding to the WHO, which is obviously the Biden administration wants to surrender our national sovereignty to. Uh, There's other things that we can cut, and the Senate doesn't want to do that. They don't truly want to support Israel, or they would do it and allow it to be paid for with, with any one of these examples.
0: And, and that makes so much more sense. And yet um, it seems that uh, Speaker Johnson, I, I think inexplicably, is advancing this. And the House Freedom Caucus, um, of, of course, which you're the leader of um, and, the, and the chairperson, released uh, the following statement in regard to the standalone Israel funding bill, support Israel without bankrupting America. Uh, that's the headline. And I think uh, that really is exactly what we're talking about. And so moving forward, um, do you see that this type of a standalone bill is going to get enough support to pass in the house and and we're looking at adding to the national debt or what are the options right now on Capitol Hill
2: well we have asked speaker Johnson if you're going to move forward with this allow us at least to make amendments to the bill with different pay-for options, at least let's have votes on whether or not to pay for it, these different measures. Again, we support Israel strongly. We believe they are our most important ally, and and they're one of the just a handful who are true allies on the global stage. Uh, but allow amendments to it. But I fear what's going to happen is we're going to pass it under suspension of the rules, uh, where members will. Will yield to the just the perception they don't want to, they're, they're fearful of being perceived as not supporting Israel, and they'll compromise again on the fiscal uh, stability, uh, solvency of the United States and borrow the money to do it. I fear it will pass in that respect, and then that just facilitates you know the next supplemental to not be paid for, uh, you know, whether it's for. Taiwan, or whether it's for disaster relief, or whether it's for some other so-called crisis that comes up, let alone Ukraine for sixty billion dollars in this hundred eighteen billion dollar supplemental that was released last night. When you failure or 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 surrender facilitates future failure and surrender, there's no such thing as one-time exceptions. Uh, These are precedents for what you do going forward. And when we were encouraged by the speaker three months ago that hey, let's turn the page and let's stop the era of unpaid supplementals because the the days of spending without consequence are over. To your point of a moment ago, we're paying nearly a a trillion dollars in interest annually now. We're suffering 40-year high inflation because of the spending. We're suffering 20-year high interest rates because of the spending. The American people are hurting as a result of this bad policy related to our spending, and it's time to stop it. And we can do it. We can support Israel by paying for it.
0: I'm speaking with Congressman Bob Good and and I think 34 trillion is just such a an abstract concept I think to most Americans and at least you know for me growing up um, just with the national debt being so, enormous. It almost feels like we've just been living with this for so long. We don't actually understand the impact day-to-day on the economy. And it's very easy to just blame, uh, you know, whoever is in office um, in the executive branch and the president for, uh, for for, economics and for, you know, some of the fiscal policy and all of that. But, um, but a lot of this, Congress can Help and and especially by um, by reducing spending and cutting that waste and not uh, passing these types of bills that just add an increase to the national debt and so um, does does the GOP or does does the speaker have you know any sort of response to some of these concerns?
2: What the speaker has said is he's he, he believes that passing Israel as a standalone even not paid for diminishes the pressure to take up the Senate's $118 billion supplemental that includes $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel. And he thinks, well, if we do Israel by itself, that relieves the pressure on us uh, to comply with the Senate bill. But doggone it, we, the Senate bill needs to be dead on arrival, this $118 billion that is a uh, codifying into law, bad immigration policy, bad border policy that gives political cover to those who are per- perpetrating the illegal invasion. Uh, and includes the $60 billion for Ukraine, which is not supported by a majority of Republicans. We just need to say it's dead on arrival and, and withstand the pressure and tell the Senate to shove that deal. Uh, we should support Israel. We should pay for it. Uh, you talked about the debt. Uh, that $34 trillion equates to about $100,000 per American citizen. So think about this. All of us have a $100,000 unsecured loan, if you will, out there that we owe money on, that we have to pay interest on to the tune of, again, nearly a trillion dollars a year in interest. And, again, that's causing unprecedented inflation and higher interest rates, and the American people, they can't afford the essentials now because of this. And it's going to get worse, especially if we continue to exacerbate it by doing things like unpaid-for supplementals.
0: And and that picture right there of a hundred thousand per American. I mean, for everyone listening, imagine if right now per person in your household suddenly you had a hundred thousand dollars of credit card debt. I mean, people would be. Uh, very nervous. And and hopefully that would cause them great pause. And I think that is a lot more relevant of, of a concept and, um, and understandable of a concept than just saying something like $34 trillion and, oh, well, you know, the government will pay for it. But the government is a non-revenue generating institution. It's only through the American right. taxpayers that anything gets paid for. And so this does um, just seem very reckless. And it seems like the GOP can't withstand a lot of the pressure. And so in just the last two minutes I have with you, um, Congressman, Bob Good. Um, There was a a tweet from one of our friends from The Blaze, um, Oren McIntyre, that said, if you think that uh, the GOP is still a viable political party, then I don't know what to tell you. And so um, is there any is there anything positive heading into um, this year that the GOP, in your view, um, is doing to help some of uh, the, the national debt and the economy?
2: Well, it's frustrating. We're trying to change the most powerful nation in the history of the world, and we're trying to undo some 60 years of failure going back to the Johnson administration that created this current climate. But at least you have members of Congress being willing to risk everything politically to fight to change the rules of Congress a year ago to hold the previous speaker accountable, to, to vote out a speaker and elect a new speaker, to fight over our spending bills, which we haven't fought before, uh, to, to pass some of our spending bills that we haven't done in decades, uh, to try to reform FISA. Uh, to try to end the era of again unpaid supplements, so at least we're having those battles. And what we've got to do is put pressure on all Republicans that it's uncomfortable, it's untenable, it's painful to, to support bad policy. We've got to get elected more courageous conservative freedom caucus types in these primaries. I think we're going to do that this, this spring and this summer. Um, and uh, that, that's the key is to get the, the courageous fighters in there that, that will take a stand and will do the right thing. But I'll just last thing I'll just say very quickly is this supplemental bill from the Senate, this $118 billion. This is a point of demarcation for Republicans. You're going to find out which Republicans are on your side and which Republicans are on the side of the lobbyists, the K Street and the Wall Street and the elites on who supports this $118 billion supplemental that's been brought by the Senate.
0: Really good point. And that's why we need to have uh, a, a chart and know who has voted in which direction. And I would encourage everyone, call your representatives in Congress, call the Speaker's office and tell them how you feel about this reckless spending bill. All right, we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
1: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio.
0: Well, as we continue to see the dramatic differences and divides between red states and blue states and leftist policies versus conservative policies, especially in the area of parental rights, we continue to see headlines like this one. A New York father loses legal battle to stop his son, eight, from taking puberty blockers to change gender. So a New York family court uh, official has denied a father the legal right to stop his eight-year-old son taking life-changing hormones that would begin his medical transition to a girl. Dennis Hannon, 32, a software engineer, a senior software engineer from Buffalo has been locked in a quote unquote nightmare legal battle with the Erie Supreme court spanning seven years fighting to retain his fundamental parental rights. He says that the boy's mother pushed the child's transition and says the boy himself was not distressed at all about living as a boy. And that um, typically is, is the story. And then without his knowledge or consent, there was a unilateral transition um, when the child was um, about four or five by the school. This is a horrific story, I think for any parent and Dennis Hannon joins me this morning and um, I just I, I, I cannot tell you how heartbreaking this story is uh, Dennis and I am so sorry that you were going through this and um, and I know for everyone listening already uh, we will we will also uh, say this at, at the end, but you have a a give send to go a campaign that was uh, created. It's give, Send, go forward slash indoctrinate this. That's the organization that's trying to help you with the legal uh, fees because um, right now you don't have the funds to appeal. I mean, this is so expensive. It's so horrendous. And um, thank you for joining me and, and, and telling your story. So um, how, how did this even start and, and unfold and how are you doing?
3: Well, thanks for having me, Jenna. Um, good morning. I, I appreciate this opportunity to, you know, tell this story and get it out so hopefully it sparks some true reform and change. Um, I was essentially, so you hit the nail on the head, I was essentially the last to know in a unilateral gender transition of my child. I found out by a letter in the mail addressed to the parent or guardian of, followed by a female name, uh, Ruby Rose Hannon. I didn't recognize this name wasn't a name I was familiar with. I know there was an actress by the name Ruby Rose, but that was it. Um, so I thought, you know, maybe they had the the wrong child on there, you know, uh, that it was addressed to, but the address was correct. So I opened it anyways, and one of the worst days of my life, I, It it just crushed my soul. They had assigned my son a female name that I didn't recognize. They had referred to him exclusively using female pronouns, she, her. And essentially, I was the last to know. And I got this letter in the mail after reaching out to the school because I was concerned because I wasn't receiving any kind of updates from them. There was an issue with their parent portal. They worked it out. And then, I don't know, about several weeks later, I, I got his report card in the mail. And I wish that that was the beginning. Um, but it wasn't.
0: And... So was, you know,
3: the worst of it. But It's hard. It's hard for me to even talk about, to be honest I, with you.
0: I I can't imagine. And and this this article says that your your ex wife began dressing your son in girls clothes when he turned three, and you were seeing your son um, at least in terms of of some custody arrangement and and um, visitation. And so when he came to your home, was was he? Dressed normally and and as as a boy or or how did that work?
3: Yeah, it was it was totally hidden for me. So through court discovery, after opening that letter and following the the court process, um, I discovered that this started at about age two to three. She was dressing him up in girl clothes. She even had him in uh, different beauty pageants. You know, virtue signaling, trying to climb her social ranks within her groups. Uh, And and so he was actually going to a therapist who was affirming gender care, a self-described gender-affirming therapist that specializes in adolescence. And he was going there between two to three years old, um, even before I got that letter. Nobody had reached out to me. Nobody had notified me. Nobody had offered uh, for me to be a part of this treatment. And so when I was picking him up, during all during this whole time, he was just a regular boy. I had no reason to think any different. He showed no indications of having any kind of gender confusion. There, there was nothing that I could see that would have prompted me to think he was confused about his identity at all. However, when he was with his mother and his mother's care and going to school, he was a girl named Ruby. He had his hair done up. He had dresses, makeup, accoutrements, everything you could think of. You would think it was a little girl. And it it just crushed my soul. And there was never a formal diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Um, the therapist kept no notes of any therapy sessions. That was uh, one of the reasons why she refused a subpoena in at least one case. She never followed any WPATH standards for transgender care. And essentially, my son had a transition plan and treatment plan before ever having a diagnosis, and he still never has had a diagnosis.
0: Wow, this is just horrific, and I'm speaking with uh, Dennis Hannon, who is the father of this young boy, and we'll call him by his uh, his actually correct uh, pronouns and gender, and we know that uh, you can't actually transition your gender, but this is, so, so when you were sharing uh, custody with your ex-wife, um, at that point, did you still have joint medical decision-making and, and, and this should have been something that she at least conferred with you and and gave you notice was going on?
3: Yes, absolutely. Um, when I, when I first started the process of divorce with my ex-wife, um, I only had him for two hours supervised two days a week. So there wasn't a whole lot of time, but during that time, there was nothing to indicate anything. I was never informed uh, that he was confused about his identity. No doctor, no therapist ever reached out to me. It, It was shared. I had full access to medical, but you don't know what you don't know.
0: Right. And if this is hidden and she's making this entire plan without your knowledge or consent or involvement, um, then I can I can only imagine how shocking this would be to learn all of this. And so once you learned this, then you took her to court to try to figure out what was going on. And ultimately now um, you've lost medical authority of your son Matthew how 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 did that happen I mean, obviously this is New York so they're insane but um, but you went to try to protect your son and ultimately lost medical authority
3: yes that's correct so the therapist that he was originally going to um, between the ages of two to three actually referred my son to an endocrinologist and over two phone calls totaling 45 minutes with only the mother they never spoke to the child or saw the child at all they said that my son could be a candidate for puberty blockers by the age of nine i put a stop to that the doctor's name was actually dr tran if you can believe that i'm not making that up dr tran so through the court process this all came out however the courts ordered that he still go to a gender therapist I was taking him at sometimes once a week. It was $145 a session out of pocket, and he was never diagnosed with gender dysphoria. So he went there a year and a half, and they called it essential medical treatment. Finally, I said, hey, look, enough is enough. He's been here a year and a half, no diagnosis. I said, you know what? I want you to discharge my son. I wrote an email. I copied all the parties on it. The therapist refused to discharge my son. And in return, I lost my sole medical authority. So she has full control over his providers, uh, his treatment. I, I don't have a say in anything when it comes to his health or medical decision-making.
0: So, so through this whole time that he was going to this therapist and you were still involved, um, what was your son saying at the time, and, and how, how was he dealing with all of this?
3: Well, it was difficult. Um, because when this started, he didn't really have a voice. And then as years went by, he realized that this isn't something that he ever wanted. It was something that was forced upon him. And nobody had ever considered the psychological impact on a five-year-old socially transitioning them. So, of course, in school, one year he's a girl named Ruby, and the next year he's a boy. Kids would ask him, you know, weren't you a girl? Wasn't your name Ruby? <clears throat> Excuse me, and he just plays it off and, and says, "You know, you must have the wrong person." Um, but it's it's been very hard on him, and this is something that you know he's he's had to live with. Um, but now he's a very normal little boy, loves doing boy things, and just like before, shows no indication of of being confused whatsoever.
0: Wow. Well, well thankfully, um, he is at least um, according to this article, and you can confirm he is at, at least now um, a boy goes by Matthew and he's eight years old. Um, yeah. And so so is he expressing more of a voice in this process at, at that age or where is this currently?
3: Yeah, I, well, he had to learn early um, that it's, it's important to stand up for what you believe in and what you want in life. And sometimes equally is important to stand up for what you don't and, and make that known. So now that he is, he's actually nine years old now, now that he's nine, he's older, he understands, and he realizes, uh, what happened to him. And he realizes that he was so young he, it, it wasn't him. He he understands that this was something that was forced upon him. So yeah, he has some resentment over that and, and that's something that we'll continue to work on and even when he does find a partner later on in life and they're going through school photos of him, it's going to v- be a very difficult discussion for him to have, but he's a strong little boy. I'm proud of him and uh, I'm, I'm just very blessed because this story is actually, he's a lucky one. Some other kids out there aren't as lucky, and that's why I'm coming forward. So hopefully I can be the first shoe that drops that says, look, we need to stop gender affirming care for minors. This is just a business, and we're, we're hurting these kids. It needs to stop.
0: Yeah, and I'm so grateful that you are telling your story as difficult as this is, because our, our society, you're right, is going to have to increasingly deal with the fallout of the LGBT agenda and the all of these so-called medical professionals that are forcing uh, this type of gender transition, and parents who are, for virtue signaling, as you mentioned, or other reasons, forcing this on kids, and um, and as they get older, um, if they choose to then say, "Wait a minute, this is <laughs> this is not right," then yeah. they're going to have to deal with a lot of this fallout and. Um, and you personally have, have also had to deal with the fallout of the expense of the court process. Um, you've said that you've spent every dime of your retirement and um, you that's currently right. don't have the funds to, to appeal. And so um, so again, the Gibson go is give, send, go forward/ slash indoctrinate this and that's the organization. Uh, that is helping parents preserve traditional family values. Um, you can go to their website as well. It's indoctrinatethis.org, and um, and so people can give there to help you if they if they would like to. Um, but what is your plan forward? I mean, and I just a nine year old. That's still, I mean, he is still so young, and his childhood should have been a childhood not dealing with this kind of genuinely adult material so I mean that's that's still really really young to have to deal with this but um, what is your plan forward in terms of a pathway to appeal what is your goal
3: well I hope to appeal Um, the way that the orders were written it's gonna take about four appeals to really undo all of the damage that was done through the Supreme Court I'm taking it one day at a time um i do feel blessed in the sense that although i may have lost in court as it stands right now that i saved my son in the process because he is awake and he understands and i have full faith that um you know he he's he's at a point where he can stand up for himself uh but if i am afforded the opportunity to appeal obviously that's what i'm going to do i'm never going to stop fighting But I hope to continue to tell this story so that others may learn from this experience so that if it, you know, if this doesn't happen to another parent or child again, then I feel accomplished at the end of the day. But if I go silent and this continues to happen, then that means that it was all done in vain.
0: Well, thank you for speaking out, and um, I know that your son will be very grateful the older that he gets that, uh, that you stood firm and gave him that voice and tried your hardest to protect him, and um, we will be praying for you um, in this endeavor. And in just the last few minutes I have with you, um, Dennis Hannon, um, and I so appreciate your time here, um, what would you tell to other parents who maybe are sharing um, custody or they may be in a similar situation of, you know, not really knowing what's going on? I mean, are the, are the, looking back, are there any kind of warning signs or conversations that you wish you had had with the mother or any advice that you could give um, our listeners?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Talk to your children. Have these difficult conversations with them about the so-called gender, identity ideology that's being pushed in schools and throughout our society. Because if you don't talk to your kids about this, a state-funded educator or somebody else will that thinks that they know better than you.
0: Mm, Yeah. And, And this is where... These so-called experts um, are not, and they have an agenda instead of truly the best interests of the child. And it is it disgusts me how so many courts think that they can determine over parents like you the best interests of your child and can foreclose parental rights in that manner. And I really hope um, that you raise the funds, uh, Dennis, to be able to appeal this and. Uh, that you ultimately secure a victory, but again, you're speaking out, and so appreciate that, and um, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Again, the Gibson Go is Gibson Go. dot uh, com forward slash indoctrinate this, and this is why uh, we need to be vigilant for parental rights, for family values, because this is not the America that um, that I know and love. Um, but we'll be right back with more here and Jenna Ellis in the morning. If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost-sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods, since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. that's chministries.org slash AFR. Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health share ministry, serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend too. chministries.com slash AFR. Make the switch today with any time enrollment.
1: ...with Eight Days of Hope. you know over the last 19 years, Eight Days of Hope has helped over 9,000 families rebuild their homes for free in the aftermath of a natural disaster. About 55,000 volunteers have traveled coast to coast with Eight Days of Hope. And today, we're excited to announce Eight Days of Hope 20, our 23 building trip from March 9th to March 16th in Henry, Mississippi. Last year in March, an EF3 tornado came through the town and wreaked havoc. Thousands of families had damaged on their homes and there was loss of life. And now you and I get a chance to be the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus, and you can join us. It's free. We provide food and lodging and all the information's on our website at 8daysofhope.com. Please join us during the outreach on March 14th. We, are messengers, Ben Fuller and Jonathan Trailer are going to put on a free concert for the volunteers and the families. Again, all the information's on our website. Go to 8daysofhope.com. That's 8daysofhope.com. welcome back to jenna ellis in the morning on american family radio
0: welcome back and if you are just joining us and missed that last segment um really go back and listen to the podcast version of this program at afr.net uh later today as soon as we post it with uh, this just heartbreaking story of this father who um had his ex-wife attempted to start uh, gender transitioning their eight-year-old uh, son when he was much, much younger at age three without his knowledge or consent. And uh, th- these types of stories are just going to increase. And we as, as, as the church, as Christians, are going to have to confront how we deal with these issues uh, because of the perverse evil that is invading our legal system and foreclosing parental rights and truly doing so much harm and damage. Um, and this is why it matters that we don't just stay kind of in our ivory towers or within the uh, the four walls of our church, but that we truly are missional and mission-driven. And we fulfill the Great Commission to bring the truth of the gospel of Christ to our communities uh, and to every facet of our, our our civil society, because law is going to have consequences on how we live out our freedoms, uh, what we can and cannot do in civil society. And if you think that law doesn't matter or that it's it's not um, it, it's not an expression of morality in a society, then I, I think what is going on in our current climate is a huge wake-up call because we have been so fortunate and blessed to live in a country that has been predicated on the biblical worldview and grounded in understanding that there are certain basic fundamental rights that include life liberty and the pursuit of happiness but include things like parental rights free exercise of religion being able to invest and inform uh, in your own children and have um, that type of medical decision making that is not just up to a so-called expert. I mean, when did we get to a place in society that we actually genuinely think that judges and doctors and school teachers know better than parents for their own children? I mean, it's absolutely insane, but this is the leftist propaganda, that they will tell us that it doesn't matter what you think, Christian. And in fact, if you are a Christian, then you're at an extreme disadvantage that you are just trying to force your religion or, um, you know, your your faith onto your child over and above what the expert thinks is best for him or her or him becoming a her uh, and, and so on down the line. And this is where law has to reflect an objective standard of truth, and and we can all have a view of society in terms of a worldview, and and in some ways, you know, a, a a certain amount of bias, right? But we have to understand that it's not our bias or our opinion, and certainly not their bias and their opinions. We have to have an objective standard. And I was thinking about this analogy last night. If you're trying to hang a painting, and I'm, I'm actually trying to to hang some, some of my artwork in my apartment and i am not good at this at all so i'm i'm thinking about enlisting um a couple of my my guy friends to come over and you know please help me um and and hanging pictures if i look at it just eyeballing it i could think okay that's hanging straight and that's my perspective. And if I move a little bit, you know, to the right or left, I might have a slightly different perspective. Now, is the painting actually hanging straight? Does it conform with the objective measurements? Because there, there, is, a, there is truly a definition of what constitutes level. Right. That's not that's not an opinion. It's not level versus crooked is not a matter of my perspective or theologically what we would call standpoint epistemology um, of, of your bias based on your truth, your perspective, your standpoint of how you view the world. And you could think that it looks fine and it looks straight. But when you get out that level, you get out that measuring stick that will tell you the truth or the falsity of your perspective. And so whenever we are addressing and confronting any of these issues, it's so easy to say, well, I'm a Christian and my perspective is, but that's not ultimately what matters. Now we are Christians and it obviously matters that we have a biblical worldview, but what matters in terms of the argument is getting out an objective measuring stick. And that always needs to be what we appeal to. And for things much more important than, you know, hanging artwork in an apartment, it matters that we tell the world and tell our civil society that they have to return to an objective measurement because otherwise we are descending into chaos with everyone's perspectives being equal to a certain extent. And that's what the left sold us, that lie, right? Everyone can live out their truth. But what they meant by that is we are ultimately going to say everyone can live out their truth as long as it conforms to our bias and our agenda. And that's why they have consistently over the last especially 10 or so years, the left has been very good at suggesting now that you have to be an expert if you want to opine on things that are just fundamentally obvious because they're, they're what our founders called self-evident truth. Um, one of the greatest examples was when Matt Walsh, our friend from Daily Wire, was testifying in front of Congress. And the, a, a Democrat member asked him about biology and, and the difference, of course, between men and women and the whole question of what is a woman. And well, what's, what is your qualification to comment on that? And he just retorted, because I'm a human and I have eyes. I mean, it, it, it's, so, it's, it's so basic. You don't need to be a biologist, according to now a member of our actual highest court in the land. That said, Katanji Brown Jackson said in her confirmation hearing that she can't answer that question because she's not a biologist. And everybody laughed at that and said, well, that's ridiculous. And so, so uh, since I'm not a weatherman, I can't tell that it's raining outside of my apartment this morning. Well, no, it goes deeper than that. And it's worse than that, because what the left is implicitly saying is that you have to be an expert educated through our institutions that indoctrinate you if you want to opine and have your quote unquote truth accepted and validated in civil society. And that is going to translate and it already has translated into our legal system and our justice system. And this is where we are headed rapidly and we are descending into a chaotic civil society that is not governed by a plumb line that is not governed by an objective metric and standard, but by these so-called experts that are being falsely held up as having the truth. Like Dr. Fauci, I am the science. He, he was saying, ignore everything that objective reality tells you, ignore your lying eyes and trust me because I am the expert. Therefore, I am the science. That's they're literally telling you that if you don't have the qualifications and criteria and the expertise that they value, then you are not qualified to exercise parental rights. Um faith, of course, is a is a crutch according to them, and you just believe in, you know, the fairy, God in the sky and the sky daddy, as they call him, um, which is just so perverse and, um, and, and heretical. Um, and and they're on purpose laughing and saying, you know, you don't, you don't need religion as a crutch. And so if you are a profess- professing Christian, then automatically you are viewed as dangerous, as radical, as uh, someone who doesn't believe in reality. All of these issues of worldview Come back to ultimately the law. Because when a culture and a society steps away from objective truth and an objective measurement by which we advance what is permissive and what is prohibited, the measurable legal difference between right and wrong, good and evil in a society where law functions and where we still in, in some instances have law and order. I mean, we still have courts of justice even if um, the Democrats want to just release all of the criminals. You know, we still have courts of justice and equity. If we want to have our law reflect moral objective truth, then we have to go back to that objective standard instead of how the left is attempting to completely reinvent and reimagine these institutions. They take these terms like justice and they twist it and they pervert it. Justice now means not only social justice, which I know all of you listening are aware of that term, but it's even deeper than that and it's more... um, nefarious than that, because what they're doing is suggesting that true justice means that we listen to their experts and we start foreclosing parental rights of the the weak and feeble-minded Christians. And they are continuing to advance their social agenda through the law. And so when culture descends into this type of chaos, the law will start reflecting the reality that they are projecting and creating. And this is why it is so important that Christians don't just step back and disengage, but that we stand up and we fight for the truth and we fight for that objective measurement. It's not my truth versus their truth. It's not me saying, I want to force my Christian views onto society. It's that the Judeo-Christian worldview of civil government accurately reflects the only objective standard. Because it it all I mean law is going to codify someone's morality. Law is always an expression of what society believes and what society allows and permits and what it criminalizes and punishes. And so it just depends on whose morality are we talking about? Now, the left would like to tell you that in this post-truth era, anybody's view can can go. But as we've established through this conversation, they want to have their experts be the only ones that establish what is right and wrong. And, And in their view, right now, It is wrong if you as a parent do not affirm the gender transition of your child. They have said that openly. They've even used terms like wrong. And so they're using these terms and they're twisting and manipulating them to say that justice now means whatever their experts are telling us is the measurable difference between right and wrong, good and evil. So now that has been flipped on its head and the the definition of wrong is a parent not affirming their child's gender transition. That's what they would have us believe. And and this is where when we get to these types of court cases and we get to these types of decisions from judges that seem so bizarre, and they are, so wrong, and they are, we have to trace back the steps. and And this started all the way back, I mean, really, the 1920s was bad uh, legally in terms of the Supreme Court, but also um, this really came to a, a head. And you're you're hearing uh, Todd and Copper playing in the background. And thanks to everybody, by the way, who always uh, writes in and says you love hearing them and <laughs> you uh, you 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 just love them. That's actually the the number one uh, response that I get from listeners is is how much you appreciate hearing the dogs, and I love that. But um, but if we <sighs> If we go back and we consider where this started this was back in the 1960s with a case in 1965 called griswold versus connecticut it was the first contraceptive case where the supreme court looked at the constitution they didn't have any ability to actually rule on this particular case or opine for the entire country They created a doctrine called the penumbra doctrine where literally they're reading between the lines of the text of the Constitution and saying that our rights emanate from the vast penumbra, the shadowy parts between the text, and that gives them jurisdiction to have an opinion on those rights. It's totally bizarre, and every single social issue that has come from that has stemmed from that very, very ill-informed case that was so bad at its inception we have to start winding back the insanity and we have to continue to be missionaries to our lost and dying culture and not just say it's my truth because this is better but to point to objective truth and an objective plumb line if we are hanging the picture of law in society We can't just have standpoint epistemology. We have to have a plumb line and a a level, and say this is what actually matches according to reality. So you can reach me and my team, Jenna at afr.net, and I will see you tomorrow morning.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.
0: I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com AFR and sponsor an ultrasound?